Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And onto this Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can read them all. I cover all eras of film at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also review new films out in theaters on another podcast that I do called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at that website, Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the first of a three-part series looking at films of the 1980s that are based on characters created by Robert E. Howard, a writer from the 1930s who is well-known for the main character in the film that I'm going to be reviewing today. It's 1982's Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian is an R-rated film. It does have strong violence, sex, nudity, and gore. The runtime is two hours and nine minutes. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he would become a star by making this film. James Earl Jones, Sandal Bergman, Jerry Lopez, Ben Davidson, Mako, and Max von Sydow are also in the film. The director is John Milius, who also writes the screenplay, although the screenplay is also credited to none other than Oliver Stone. Now, Conan is Robert E. Howard's literary creation. The character originally appeared in a pulp magazine called Weird Tales, published in the 1930s, and he really does come to life here in this 1982 film. It did come out right at the right time to ride kind of a sword and sorcery wave. There was a wildly popular role-playing game that was sweeping the teenage nation at the time called Dungeons & Dragons, and it really was a timely heroic fantasy release. The setting for Conan the Barbarian is the Hyborian Age. It's a fictional period that was created by Robert E. Howard. It's kind of around 10,000 BC, a a time of magic and madmen and mercenaries and barbarians who have to kill before they end up getting killed. And the film here, starting off with Conan as a young boy in Samaria, he's orphaned at the hands of this evil snake cult leader and this black magic sorcerer named Thulsa Doom, played by James Earl Jones. Conan ends up getting taken into slavery, where he's worked very hard, but he builds a lot of big muscles, and as he grows up into a man, he ends up fighting in the arena for sport. He's a gladiator, and he becomes very good at what he does, and soon... He ends up escaping, and he uses his newfound freedom to seek revenge on this man responsible for the murder of his parents with some help from new friends that he ends up meeting along the way. A lot more to the story than that, but it is a very simple premise nonetheless. The origin of Conan the Barbarian as a film it started back in 1975, and that's where we find a director and producer named George Butler who was screening footage to some of his friends of this bodybuilding documentary he was making called Pumping Iron. One of the people in attendance was a toy company heir turned film producer named Edward R. Pressman, and he was there with his friend, a comic store owner in New York City called Ed Summer. 
Pressman grew very enamored as he was watching this footage of this highly intelligent and very charismatic bodybuilder champion named Arnold Schwarzenegger. This guy had star potential if he could find the right vehicle for him. And as they were discussing this, Ed Summer suggested Conan. And he brought Pressman to his comic book store to show him issues of the Marvel Comics Conan the Barbarian series, as well as some of Frank Frazetta's stunning artwork for the covers of Howard's book reprints from the 1960s. Pressman was really taken by the Frazetta work, and he felt that these paintings evoked action and excitement and a cinematic appeal. They were like movies captured in single images. So Pressman set about trying to acquire the Conan property, and that proved to be challenging because the rights holders were fragmented among multiple parties over many decades. And in the meantime, Pressman called in Ed Summer to write a script for him. He wanted to make a low-budget version of Conan for about $2.5 million at that time, which is what he could afford. And Summer wrote his first story treatment with the writer for Marvel Comics' Conan the Barbarian, Roy Thomas, who was pretty much as big an expert as there was at that time. But they couldn't quite legally adapt Robert E. Howard's stories into their film because they didn't have the rights yet. It took two years of legal hurdles Pressman finally sorted those legal rights out, and the rights to Howard's works, all of them, were only $7,500. But it did cost him over $100,000 in legal fees over the years as well. Now, according to Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was approached to play Conan by Pressman while he was dining at a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. Schwarzenegger received offers regularly from a lot of fast-talking Hollywood types. They wanted him to be their next Hercules or appear in some schlocky movie as some sort of He-Man. So Schwarzenegger didn't have a lot of time for that. In fact, he had never even heard of Conan or even Pressman for that matter. But he was struck by the producer's demeanor. He seemed very low-key and very nervous in his pitch. And he had a great thoughtfulness to him that Schwarzenegger took his intent as being earnest. So after listening to him, he ended up thinking about it and then signed a contract for a $250,000 retainer toward a $3.5 million five-picture deal on condition that he would not star in any other fantasy genre films during that run. Now, Schwarzenegger started training for this role. He thought this actually could make him a star, and he worked on reducing his thick Austrian accent. He started taking speech lessons, and he took training courses on what he might do in this film. Horseback riding, rope climbing, sword fighting. He ended up also trimming down his physique because he thought his body should be more athletic as well as strong, but his muscles were unnatural looking because he had been pumping iron all day to compete in bodybuilding competitions. So with Conan now cast and with the story rights in hand, Edward Pressman was told by Paramount that they would fund his film if he could find a writer with a little bit more clout than Ed Summer, the comic book store owner. So Pressman met with Oliver Stone through his agent. Oliver Stone was getting some acclaim for his screenplay to Midnight Express, and Pressman ended up reading his latest script by Oliver Stone. It was called The Platoon, which later became, of course, Platoon. He was very impressed with that screenplay, even though it was still kind of in a raw form. Pressman hired Stone to write a draft for Conan and to see what he could come up with. The sky was the limit, he told him. Stone ended up gravitating toward two of Robert E. Howard's stories, one called A Witch Shall Be Born, which inspired the famous scene in Conan the Barbarian of Conan's crucifixion and this battle with a vulture, and The Scarlet Citadel, which contained a giant snake, famously. 
The secondary characters were mainly an amalgamation of these names and traits that were found in characters in Howard's not only Conan series, but also King Call and the Bran McMorrin series. Pressman had acquired the rights to all of Robert E. Howard's characters in his deal. Now, Stone Scope was massive, and it featured elaborate battles. It had mechanized chariots fighting against hordes of mutant enemies and all kinds of crazy things. And, and Stone even did something kind of weird. He placed the setting not in the past, but as a post-apocalyptic future, kind of beyond Mad Max, just a crazy time. And he envisioned this to be a big series full of a lot of sequels. Like James Bond, they would come back every couple of years with a new cinematic adventure for Conan. Now, Pressman loved the script, but the execs at Paramount, after reading it, thought this really was not the right fit for them, so they ended up pulling out of the deal. So after shopping it to various other studios, none of them seemed willing to put up the money, especially with this untested screenwriter, Oliver Stone, suggested as a co-director, Jaws 2's second unit director, Joe Alves, was put in the deal as part of a package to try to get the studios to sign on board. Now, the bean counters of the studios estimated that the cost of production to produce a big screen version of Stone Script as it was, it was going to run over four hours long and the budget would exceed $40 million which was way too much money for a character that didn't have big screen clout yet, made by people who also didn't have much big screen clout. So Pressman ended up seeking out directors he could attach to this project that had more of a name. He started out with John Milius, and Alan Parker was also considered... Parker had directed Stone's Midnight Express famously. Ridley Scott and Ralph Bakshi were also considerations. Now, John Milius, he was the first choice, but he was busy shooting Big Wednesday at the time, so they would have to wait for him to be finished with that if he wanted to give it a look. Ridley Scott read it, but he ended up passing on the project because he thought the choice of Arnold Schwarzenegger was wrong. He wanted a more established and more credible main actor, which they weren't willing to do. Ralph Bakshi, he met with them, but he ended up, during the conversation, insulting Schwarzenegger claiming he was just too big for the role, so he was out, if you believe Bakshi's story anyway. Now, Schwarzenegger ended up reaching out to the biggest director that he had worked with up to that time, Hal Needham. Hal Needham directed Schwarzenegger in a film called The Villain before, which wasn't very successful, but he was known, and Needham read the script, but he thought after reading it, it just was going to be a big mistake for both of them because he absolutely could not understand a word of what was going on in the screenplay. So Pressman, despite it all, he remained optimistic that something could be worked out. And soon he caught his first big break toward that end when he and Oliver Stone ended up meeting with producer Dino De Laurentiis. Now, De Laurentiis liked the script. He bought it and he brought it to Ned Tannen at Universal thinking, hey, what about this one? And Tannen liked it too, but he thought it was just too violent and it was going to be too expensive the way that it was. It needed to be rewritten. They needed to tone down that violence and to get all of these ideas within a modest budget. Now, John Milius would enter the picture once again. He was under contract with De Laurentiis on his next film called Half of the Sky. Now, Milius at that time, he knew nothing about Conan or Robert E. Howard. He didn't understand any of that stuff. But the conceptual designer on Half of the Sky it was a man named Ron Cobb. He was hired at that time by Pressman to do pre-production artwork based on Oliver Stone's script while Milius was away doing something in Europe. Now, when Milius returned, Ron Cobb encouraged him to give this Conan script a look, and Milius ended up reading it, and then he proclaimed after he was done that no one but him could make this picture. Milius ended up meeting with Oliver Stone about the script. He was sold on this concept because he found it both inspirational and utterly insane. 
He had to do Conan. He was born to do it, so he felt. He ended up approaching De Laurentiis about this project he had just bought. He asked about switching his directorial assignment, his contract, to Conan instead. Now, feeling like this was going to be a much more commercial venture for him, De Laurentiis sold off the project of Half of the Sky to Warner Brothers, and he was going to push forward with producing Conan the Barbarian on the condition that John Milius revised this script to his liking and bring down the cost of production by half. Now, the purchase of the script actually took over a year to work out this deal with De Laurentiis. When it was all said and done, the Italian film mogul would call the shots financially and production-wise for the first film only. Other than the script and the star and the director, Pressman had final say on those. Pressman, on his end, would waive a share of the profits to try to retain the rights for the sequels and the tie-in merchandising for his toy company. Now, Pressman would later trade those sequel rights away to De Laurentiis for the sum of $4.5 million dollars and 10% of the gross for any sequels, and he threw in director Roger Donaldson to helm The Bounty, which was a film that De Laurentiis needed a director for but didn't have. The toy rights that Pressman had ended up getting sold off to Mattel, who planned similar figures to their Masters of the Universe toy line that were selling quite well for them, and that kind of brought things full circle. Pressman ended up producing the 1987 Masters of the Universe film a few years down the road. Now, the De Laurentiis deal had a little bit of turbulence when it started out. Arnold Schwarzenegger had once been considered to be the star in De Laurentiis' Flash Gordon. But in the first meeting between Arnold Schwarzenegger and De Laurentiis, they got off on the wrong foot when Arnold made a comment to him asking him why such a little man needed such a big desk. A shouting match ended up ensuing, and De Laurentiis fumed at Arnold Schwarzenegger that his accent was horrendous and he was not worthy of the Flash Gordon role. De Laurentiis despised Schwarzenegger's rude and pushy and disrespectful attitude, and he wanted to replace him from Conan right off the bat. But Milius assured him that they were not going to find anyone else more suitable physically to play the Conan role, accent or not. If they didn't have Schwarzenegger, they were going to have to build their own version of him somehow. So Arnold remained. So it took nine months for John Milius to read all of Howard's stories, and then to complete his first revision of the stone script. Milius also heavily researched ancient pagan cults and their practices during this time, specifically snake and assassination cults like the Hashishim in Persia and Syria and the Thuggies in India. You know, John Milius was naturally fascinated by the history of war and military strategy, so he wanted really authentic weaponry of bygone eras to be put into this film. Ancient battle tactics... All of this would provide depth to this fictional era in Conan the Barbarian. So Milius continued to revise and revise his script, and each revision drifted further away from Oliver Stone's original screenplay. But because elements of Stone's plot framework remained through those revisions, Stone still received a co-writer credit, even though Milius made every other aspect to this movie his own. Now, Stone's massive battle sequences, those were all reduced by Milius to masculinized personal conflicts, and Milius really mixed in a lot of Western genre tropes, and he reduced a lot of the supernatural elements and the sorcery to just a couple of key scenes. He injected a lot of new ideas like Conan's childhood and his revenge motivation and the Wheel of Pain and the snake cults and 
He added ideas from other Howard stories, like the Tower of the Elephant, which inspired the scene where Conan and his friends scale the Tower of Set. And he also included elements of a Conan story not written by Robert E. Howard. El Sprague de Camp and Lean Carter's The Thing in the Crypt inspired the scene in which Conan takes a sword from this Atlantean king's corpse. Now, Milius used the concept of ancient pagan practices to try to comment on the more modern-day cults, once by Jim Jones and Charles Manson famously. They were full of followers, so brainwashed by their cult leader that they would kill themselves at his whim. And this fits in with the central conflict of the movie between the freedom of living by a personal code that's embodied in Conan versus living under someone else's rules embodied by these religious cults in Tulsa Doom. Milius emphasized emotions and action, over exposition and dialogue and to believe in these actions especially with its heavy emphasis on mysticism you have to feel the film's surreal nature you have to know that anything might happen even the supernatural within the construct of this mysterious and mythical realm that Milius was trying to deliver now Milius ended up experiencing his own challenges with De Laurentiis it wasn't just Arnold De Laurentiis ended up trying to fire Milius and take over the picture a couple of times and Milius still persisted. Reportedly, at least according to Arnold Schwarzenegger, Milius bought a lead Mussolini figurine that he would bring to meetings and show it to De Laurentiis to remind him of how fascist he sounded. Now, for casting, Milius envisioned Sean Connery as Tulsa Doom and Lou Ferrigno as Doom's main henchman and Raquel Welch, he wanted to be Conan's warrior companion Valeria. The scheduling and budgeting issues wouldn't allow for these particular actors at that time. So James Earl Jones was kind of a last-minute sign-on to play Thulsa Doom. He put in contacts to have lighter eyes, and they gave him straight hair to try to represent the last of uh, a dying race of people that are unknown to us today. These people could transform into snakes, and he was the last of them. Sandal Bergman was hired by Milius after he screened All That Jazz. He thought she would make the perfect Valeria because he envisioned Valeria as a Valkyrie, which fit in with trying to make a Viking film here. Emilius ended up also casting Jerry Lopez, who was a surfer that acted in Big Wednesday for him. He played Subatai, which was not a character created by Robert E. Howard. He actually was kind of the sidekick to Genghis Khan in history. Lopez's voice ended up getting overdubbed in the end. He had inconsistency in his accent, so a Japanese actor named Sab Shimomo provided the voice for him. And after the originally cast Sterling Hayden fell ill, the Laurentist brought in Max von Sydow, the antagonist of Flash Gordon, to play the King Osric role. Now, Milius's research and his revisions pushed the release date well into the summer of 1981. And that's when another major problem arose. After three or four months of doing some pre-production work in Yugoslavia, the country began to undergo political upheaval in the wake of Marshal Tito's death in May of 1980. So they ended up looking for a few other countries that they might be able to shoot in, and they ended up choosing Spain. That's where Milius had shot the wind and the lion, so he was very familiar with it. But the relocation would require new scouting and other work, and the release date ended up pushed forward six more months to December of 1981. Now, the shoot in Spain was grueling. The mountains near Segovia, the actors and crew endured temperatures well below zero. Oppressive humidity marked their time in Almeria, inundated by mosquitoes in the air and gnats that were invading their wardrobe. Injuries were commonplace. The actors found themselves trampled by animals and gashed during their sword fights and occasionally tearing a ligament. The dirt in Spain was all-encompassing, and that triggered Milius's chronic asthma. Milius would treat any griping that he heard with encouragement to stay all-in on the project, stating, The pain is momentary, 
but this movie is forever. Milius wanted audiences transported to another time and another place that meticulously resembled ancient days. Ron Cobb, he was working here for the first time as a production designer on a film. He researched ancient civilizations from Mayan to Aztec to Celtic to Viking to Samurai to Mongolian, mixing and matching whatever he thought was going to be cool to put in this film. $3 million of the budget went to constructing the mammoth sets alone with meticulous fantasy period detail. The wardrobe, the weaponry, the idols that they worshipped, they were all inspired by actual sources in history. Nearly 50 lavish sets were constructed in striking detail and about 3,000 handmade costumes for the cast as well as the film's 5,000 extras and the stunt personnel. I mean, this was a huge endeavor. Now, Milius wanted his cast to perform their own stunts whenever possible, especially Schwarzenegger, because there were just no stuntmen available who had his amazing physique that would be believable to audiences. So the main players ended up learning to do their own stunts. They trained in this olden form of martial arts from Japan called kendo, which is kind of uh, fighting with bamboo swords. And they learned bushido, which is this samurai code of life, which Milius also himself learned growing up as a Japanophile. Milius applied his love of Japanese culture to Conan wherever he could. He adopted samurai teachings on war and weaponry and this living by a code of honor and the samurai way, really. Milius lifted styles from Japanese directors. He gave Conan this distinct but very elegant flow among this sea of stiff and hokey entries in a brutish sword and sorcery genre. Film influences ranged from Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai to Kobayashi's Kwaidan, which were among his favorite films, and he made his cast and his crew screen them multiple times when they were preparing for their roles. Now, although it was physically exhausting, Schwarzenegger did enjoy acting for Milius because he found him very thoughtful. He had a lot of energy and really good attitude. And Milius spent a lot of his time with his main actor. He took him to dinner. They went out skeet shooting together. They built models together, airplanes and tanks and whatnot. And Milius was using that time to learn what makes Schwarzenegger tick. And really, most importantly, whatever he would psychologically react to because he had a novice actor here to contend with. So Milius was memorizing all of the triggers to get his inexperienced star actor to elicit the facial expressions that he wanted for specific scenes. Despite Conan's rough-and-tumble image, Schwarzenegger did see him as a sensitive hero. He was a lover of women and of living a simple life. And although a ladies' man himself, Schwarzenegger said that the lovemaking scenes in this film were by far the hardest for him to do, especially with Valeria. Schwarzenegger saw Sandal Bergman more as a sister than a lover. In fact, she called him Hansel, and he called her Gretel while they were on the shoot. Adding to this, Bergman's stunt coordinator boyfriend was off-camera watching every moment of their lovemaking scene, and dozens of Spanish men were peeking through the wall while they were shooting this, and they were either gazing at Sandal Bergman or maybe even Schwarzenegger himself. Now, Schwarzenegger expected to do the voiceover narration that is at the beginning and end of this film. Given that it is his story, it would make sense, but De Laurentiis could not stand his voice, so he ended up vetoing it. Universal also had qualms about the thickness of Schwarzenegger's Austrian accent being understood by American and English-speaking audiences, so... Milius ended up hearing all of these complaints, but he compromised with them. He used a different narrator. Mako would provide the narration, but he would not overdub Schwarzenegger's voice through the body of the film unless test screenings did not go well because of it. So test audiences that he showed the film to 
They love the film, and they love Schwarzenegger as the star, so his voice remained. And the buzz of these test screenings that went so well inspired Milius to imagine it as the first of a trilogy about Conan and his sword. He was going to make a couple of more after this. One of the highlights of this film is a terrific score by John Milius' USC film school classmate Basil Polidorus. He also scored Big Wednesday, and that score really generates ample excitement, and it really plays nicely with the visual effects that are done very well for this film. De Laurentiis, he wanted a more pop-oriented score, but Milius said he wanted something that evoked classic themes, and Polidurus definitely was the right person for that role. John Milius' Conan, it's a blood-and-guts adventure all of the way. There's a lot of viscera flying across the screen with every scuffle. You know, his first intended cut was 140 minutes long. That was deemed too long and too graphically violent by Universal, so they ended up ordering re-edits. A lot of scenes were removed during that part, a graphic scene of Conan's mother's beheading, where they show her head rolling on the ground, gushing blood. And there's a sequence involving Conan cutting a pickpocket's arm off that was removed and a King Osric's bloody death was also removed for the American release anyway and the re-editing did delay the release date until spring of 1982 and that's where it actually did very well Conan the Barbarian topped the box office for its first two weeks of release it garnered nearly 40 million dollars in the United States and somewhere between 40 and 80 million dollars overseas depending on what source you believe the R rating did leave out some of that younger audience that was into Dungeons and Dragons and the Marvel comic. But the director, John Milius, well, he was really content to try to make a film every bit as adult-oriented as Excalibur. And I guess to that end, he did fail to tap into the commercial appeal of Conan because it's kind of a juvenile adventure all of the way. And many viewers' only exposure to the mythic hero was in the Marvel comic itself, who would probably have enjoyed this if they could see it. But uh, it did do very well. Well, subsequently in home video releases. It made a lot of money in rentals and sales down the road. Now, some fans of Robert E. Howard's Conan properties were not pleased with John Milius's film. They felt the book series represented Conan as more intelligent. He was more conversational. He was stronger. And despite the casting of this perfect physical embodiment in Schwarzenegger, the producers don't really tap into Arnie's natural intelligence and his articulate nature because they feared audiences were not going to understand his accent. And he did have a lack of experience as an actor that might produce unintentional laughs if he had too much dialogue that he stumbled through. So they were a little bit more gun-shy or maybe sword-shy about Schwarzenegger as the star here. The sword and sorcery films, they usually have an inherent silliness anyway. Conan the Barbarian is really no different, but that doesn't make this a bad film at all. There's really a greatness to Conan the Barbarian amid all of the, the hammy acting and maybe the pomposity of the situations. And First and foremost, it is Arnold Schwarzenegger. is at his finest here. He's captivating. He's taciturn, but he has an undeniable screen presence, and he breathes life and humanity into what might otherwise be a very one-dimensional brute. And there are only a handful of these sword and sorcery films that are worth watching. Many of them are really, really bad, but Conan the Barbarian, I would say, is among the rare exceptions that are actually good. And I think the main reason for that is the passion of its director, John Milius, for crafting this epic tale with a lot of reverence for the tradition of these olden epics of ancient times. If you love muscle men, if you love mages battling out for guts and glory, 
If you just love Arnold, this is really about as good as it gets in that department. So that's why I'm giving Conan the Barbarian three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means I do think that this is a good film. And I definitely do recommend it. If you're a lover of films of the 1980s, and, and I can't imagine you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you weren't, I definitely recommend you going out of your way to see Conan the Barbarian. It's a violent film, but if you don't mind that, it definitely has a lot of interesting things to offer that would keep you captivated throughout. Even though there are some critics that don't consider it a good movie, I actually don't agree with that. I think it's actually quite good enough to get three and a half stars out of four. Now, as far as what I'm going to be covering next week, of course, I'm going to be covering the next film in the Conan the Barbarian series called Conan the Destroyer, and it came out in 1984, and that will be my review for next episode. So check out Conan the Destroyer for next week if you want to keep up with the reviews. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this look at Conan the Barbarian. If you have your own thoughts on Conan that you want to impart, you can reach out to me. You can find my contact information at my website. You can find links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram, my email. All of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. And also check out my other reviews and my other podcasts while you're there. Quipster.net is where to go. Until next time, thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 